Chapter Fifty Two, Part Five of the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Five. Chapter 52, Part 5 The third and most obvious cause was the weight and magnitude of the empire itself. The Caliph al-Mamun might proudly assert that it was easier for him to rule the east and the west than to manage a chessboard of two feet square, yet I suspect that in both those games he was guilty of many fatal mistakes, and I perceive that in the distant provinces the authority of the first and most powerful of the Abbasides was already impaired. The analogy of despotism invests the representative with the full majesty of the prince. The division and balance of powers might relax the habits of obedience, might encourage the passive subject to inquire into the origin and administration of civil government. He who is born in the purple is seldom worthy to reign. But the elevation of a private man, of a peasant, perhaps, or a slave, affords a strong presumption of his courage and capacity. The viceroy of the remote kingdom aspires to secure the property and inheritance of his precarious trust. The nations must rejoice in the presence of their sovereign, and the command of armies and treasures are at once the object and the instrument of his ambition. A change was scarcely visible as long as the lieutenants of the caliph were content with their vicarious title, while they solicited for themselves or their sons a renewal of the imperial grant, and still maintained on the coin and in public prayers the name and prerogative of the commander of the faithful. But in the long and hereditary exercise of power they assumed the pride and attributes of royalty, the alternative of peace or war, of reward and punishment, depended solely on their will, and the revenues of their government were reserved for local services or private magnificence. Instead of a regular supply of men and money, the successors of the prophet were flattered with the ostentatious gift of an elephant, or a cast of hawks, a suit of silk hangings, or some pounds of musk and amber. After the revolt of Spain from the temporal and spiritual supremacy of the Abbasides, the first symptoms of disobedience broke forth in the province of Africa. Ibrahim, the son of Aglab, the lieutenant of the vigilant and rigid Harun, bequeathed to the dynasty of Aglabites the inheritance of his name and power. The indolence or policy of the caliphs dissembled the injury and loss, and pursued only with poison the founder of the Idrisites, who erected the kingdom and city of Fez on the shores of the western ocean. In the east, the first dynasty was that of the Tahirites, the posterity of the valiant Taha, who, in the civil wars of the sons of Harun, had served with too much zeal and success the cause of Al-Mamon, the younger brother. He was sent into honorable exile to command on the banks of the Oxus, and the independence of his successors, who reigned in Khorasan till the fourth generation, was palliated by their modest and respectful demeanor, 
the happiness of their subjects, and the security of their frontier. They were supplanted by one of those adventurers so frequent in the annals of the East, who left his trade of a brazier, from whence the name of Sophorides, for the profession of a robber. In a nocturnal visit to the treasure of the prince of Sistan, Jacob, the son of Lais, stumbled over a lump of salt, which he unwarily tasted with his tongue. Salt, among the Orientals, is the symbol of hospitality, and the pious robber immediately retired without spoil or damage. The discovery of this honorable behavior recommended Jacob pardon and trust. He led an army at first for his benefactor, at last for himself, subdued Persia, and threatened the residence of the Abbasides. On his march towards Baghdad, the conqueror was arrested by a fever. He gave audience in bed to the ambassador of the caliph, and beside him on a table were exposed a naked scimitar, a crust of brown bread, and a bunch of onions. If I die, said he, your master is delivered from his fears. If I live, this must determine between us. If I am vanquished, I can return without reluctance to the homely fare of my youth. From the haze where he stood, the descent would not have been so soft or harmless. A timely death secured his own repose and that of the caliph, who paid with the most lavish concessions the retreat of his brother Amro to the palaces of Shiraz and Ispahan. The Abbasides were too feeble to contend, too proud to forgive. They invited the powerful dynasty of the Samanides, who passed the Oxus with ten thousand horse so poor that their stirrups were of wood, so brave that they vanquished the Sofarian army eight times more numerous than their own. The captive Amro was sent in chains, a grateful offering to the court of Baghdad, and as the victor was content with the inheritance of Transoxiana and Khorasan, the realms of Persia returned for a while to the allegiance of the caliphs. The provinces of Syria and Egypt were twice dismembered by the Turkish slaves of the race of Toulon and Ilkshid, these barbarians, in religion and manners the countrymen of Mahomet, emerged from the bloody factions of the palace to a provincial command and an independent throne. Their names became famous and formidable in their time. But the founders of these two potent dynasties confessed, either in words or actions, the vanity of ambition. The first on his deathbed implored the mercy of God to a sinner, ignorant of the limits of his own power. The second, in the midst of four hundred thousand soldiers and eight thousand slaves, concealed from every human eye the chamber where he attempted to sleep. Their sons were educated in the vices of kings, and both Egypt and Syria were recovered and possessed by the Abbasides during an interval of thirty years. In the decline of the empire, Mesopotamia, with the important cities of Mosul and Aleppo, was occupied by the Arabian princes of the tribe of Hamadan. The poets of their court could repeat without a blush that nature had formed their countenances for beauty, their tongues for eloquence, and their hands for liberality and valor. But the genuine tale of the elevation and reign of the Hamadanites exhibits a scene of treachery, murder, and parricide. At the same fatal period, the Persian kingdom was again usurped by the dynasty of the Bovides, by the sword of three brothers, who, under various names, 
were styled the support and columns of the state, and who, from the Caspian Sea to the ocean, would suffer no tyrants but themselves. Under their reign, the language and genius of Persia revived, and the Arabs, three hundred and four years after the death of Mohammed, were deprived of the scepter of the East. Rahadi, the twentieth of the Abbasides, and the thirty-ninth of the successors of Mohammed, was the last who deserved the title of commander of the faithful. The last, says Abu Feda, who spoke to the people, or conversed with the learned, the last who, in the expense of his household, represented the wealth and magnificence of the ancient caliphs. After him, the lords of the eastern world were reduced to the most abject misery, and exposed to the blows and insults of a servile condition. The revolt of the provinces circumscribed their dominions within the walls of Baghdad, but that capital still contained an innumerable multitude, vain of their past fortune, discontented with their present state, and oppressed by the demands of a treasury which had formerly been replenished by the spoil and tribute of nations. Their idleness was exercised by faction and controversy. Under the mask of piety, the rigid followers of Hanbal invaded the pleasures of domestic life, burst into the houses of plebeians and princes. The vine broke the instruments, beat the musicians, and dishonored, with infamous suspicions, the associates of every handsome youth. In each profession, which allowed room for two persons, the one was a votary, the other an antagonist, of Ali, and the Abbasides were awakened by the clamorous grief of the sectaries, who denied their title and cursed their progenitors. A turbulent people could only be repressed by a military force, but who could satisfy their avarice or assert the discipline of the mercenaries themselves? The African and the Turkish guards drew their swords against each other, and the chief commanders, the emirs al-Omra, imprisoned or deposed their sovereigns, and violated the sanctuary of the mosque and harem. If the caliphs escaped to the camp or court of any neighboring prince, their deliverance was a change of servitude, till they were prompted by despair to invite the Bovids, the sultans of Persia, who silenced the factions of Baghdad by their irresistible arms. The civil and military powers were assumed by Moezal Dovlat, the second of the three brothers, and a stipend of sixty thousand pounds sterling was assigned by his generosity for the private expense of the commander of the faithful. But on the fortieth day, at the audience of the ambassadors of Khorasan, and in the presence of a trembling multitude, the caliph was dragged from his throne to a dungeon, by the command of the stranger and the rude hands of his delimates. His palace was pillaged, his eyes were put out, and the mean ambition of the Abbasides aspired to the vacant station of danger and disgrace. In the school of adversity, the luxurious caliphs resumed the grave and abstemious virtues of the primitive times. Despoiled by their armor and silken robes, they fasted, they prayed, they studied the Koran and the tradition of the Sunnites. They performed, with zeal and knowledge, the functions of their ecclesiastical character. The respect of nations still waited on the successors of the apostle, the oracles of the law and conscience of the faithful, and the weakness or division of their tyrants sometimes restored the Abbasides to the sovereignty of Baghdad. 
but their misfortunes had been embittered by the triumph of the Fatimites, the real or spurious progeny of Ali. Arising from the extremity of Africa, these successful rivals extinguished, in Egypt and Syria, both the spiritual and temporal authority of the Abbasides, and the monarch of the Nile insulted the humble pontiff on the banks of the Tigris. In the declining age of the caliphs, in the century which elapsed after the war of Theophilus and Motassem, the hostile transactions of the two nations were confined to some inroads by sea and land, the fruits of their close vicinity and indelible hatred. But when the eastern world was convulsed and broken, the Greeks were roused from their lethargy by the hopes of conquest and revenge. The Byzantine Empire, since the accession of the Basilian race, had reposed in peace and dignity, and they might encounter with their entire strength the front of some petty emir, whose rear was as assaulted and threatened by his national foes of the Mahometan face. The lofty titles of the Morning Star and the death of the Saracens were applied in the public acclamations to Nicephorus Phocas, a prince as renowned in the camp as he was unpopular in the city, in the subordinate station of great domestic, or general of the East. He reduced the island of Crete, and extirpated the nest of pirates who had so long defied, with impunity, the majesty of the empire. His military genius was displayed in the conduct and success of the enterprise, which had so often failed with loss and dishonor. The Saracens were confounded by the landing of his troops on safe and level bridges, which he cast from the vessels to the shore. Seven months were consumed in the siege of Candia. The despair of the native Cretans were stimulated by the frequent aid of their brethren of Africa and Spain. And after the massive wall and double ditch had been stormed by the Greeks, a hopeless conflict was still maintained in the streets and houses of the city. The whole island was subdued in the capital, and a submissive people accepted, without resistance, the baptism of the conqueror. Constantinople applauded the long-forgotten pomp of a triumph, but the imperial diadem was the sole reward that could repay the services or satisfy the ambition of Nicephorus. After the death of the younger Romanus, the fourth in lineal descent of the Basilian race, his widow Theophania successively married Nicephorus Phocas and his assassin John Zemiskes, the two heroes of the age. They reigned as the guardians and colleagues of her infant sons, and the twelve years of their military command formed the most splendid period of the Byzantine annals. The subjects and confederates whom they led to war appeared, at least in the eyes of an enemy, two hundred thousand strong, and of these about thirty thousand were armed with cuirasses. A train of four thousand mules attended their march, and their evening camp was regularly fortified with an enclosure of iron spikes. A series of bloody and undecisive combats is nothing more than an anticipation of what would have been effected in a few years by the course of nature. But I shall briefly prosecute the conquests of the two emperors from the hills of Cappadocia to the desert of Baghdad. The sieges of Mopsuestia and Tarsus in Kilikia first exercised the skill and perseverance of their troops, on whom, at this moment, I shall not hesitate to bestow the name of Romans. In the double city of Mopsuestia, which is divided by the river Sarus, 
two hundred thousand Moslems were predestined to death or slavery, a surprising degree of population, which must at least include the inhabitants of the dependent districts. They were surrounded and taken by assault, but Tarsus was reduced by the slow progress of famine, and no sooner had the Saracens yielded on honorable terms that they were mortified by the distant and unprofitable view of the naval succors of Egypt. They were dismissed with a safe conduct to the confines of Syria. A part of the old Christians had quietly lived under their dominion, and the vacant habitations were replenished by a new colony. But the mosque was converted into a stable, the pulpit was delivered to the flames, many rich crosses of gold and gems, the spoils of Asiatic churches, were made a grateful offering to the piety or avarice of the emperor, and he transported the gates of Mopsuestia and Tarsus, which were fixed in the walls of Constantinople, an eternal monument of his victory. After they had forced and secured the narrow passes of Mount Amanus, the two Roman princes repeatedly carried their arms into the heart of Syria. Yet, instead of assaulting the walls of Antioch, the humanity or superstition of Nicephorus appeared to respect the ancient metropolis of the east. He contented himself with drawing round the city a line of circumvallation, left a stationary army, and instructed his lieutenant to expect, without impatience, the return of spring. But in the depths of winter, in a dark and rainy night, an adventurous subaltern, with three hundred soldiers, approached the rampart, applied his scaling ladders, occupied two adjacent towers, stood firm against the pressure of multitudes, and bravely maintained his post, till he was relieved by the tardy, so effectual, support of his reluctant chief. The first tumult of slaughter and rapine subsided. The reign of Caesar and of Christ was restored, and the efforts of a hundred thousand Saracens, of the armies of Syria and the fleets of Africa, were consumed without effect before the walls of Antioch. The royal city of Aleppo was subject to Saifat Dovlat, of the dynasty of Hamadan, who clouded his past glory by the precipitate retreat, which abandoned his kingdom and capital to the Roman invaders. In his stately palace that stood without the walls of Aleppo, they joyfully seized a well-furnished magazine of arms, a stable of fourteen hundred mules, and three hundred bags of silver and gold. But the walls of the city withstood the strokes of their battering rams, and the besiegers pitched their tents on the neighboring mountain of Jaushan. Their retreat exasperated the quarrel of the townsmen and mercenaries. The guard of the gates and ramparts was deserted, and while they furiously charged each other in the marketplace, they were surprised and destroyed by the sword of a common enemy. The male sex was exterminated by the sword. Ten thousand youths were led into captivity. The weight of the precious spoil exceeded the strength and number of the beasts of burden. The superfluous remainder was burnt, and, after a licentious possession of ten days, the Romans marched away from the naked and bleeding city. In their Syrian inroads they commanded the husbandsmen to cultivate their lands, that they themselves, in the ensuing season, might reap the benefit. More than a hundred cities were reduced to obedience and eighteen pulpits of the principal mosques were committed to the flames to expiate the sacrilege of the disciples of Mohammed. The classic names of Hierapolis, Apamea, and Emesa revive for a moment in the list of conquest. The emperor Zimiscus encamped in the paradise of Damascus and accepted the ransom of a submissive people. 
and the torrent was only stopped by the impregnable fortress of Tripoli, on the sea-coast of Nicaea. Since the days of Heraclius the Euphrates, below the passage of Mount Taurus, had been impervious and almost invisible to the Greeks. The river yielded a free passage to the victorious Simiscus, and the historian may imitate the speed with which he overran the once famous cities of Samosata, Edessa, Martyropolis, Amida, and Nisibis, the ancient limit of the empire in the neighborhood of the Tigris. His ardor was quickened by the desire of grasping the virgin treasures of Ekpatana, a well-known name under which the Byzantine writer has concealed the capital of the Abbasides. The consternation of the fugitives had already diffused the terror of his name, but the fancied riches of Baghdad had already been dissipated by the avarice and prodigality of domestic tyrants. The prayers of the people and the stern demands of the lieutenant of the Bovids required the caliph to provide for the defense of the city. The helpless Mosi replied that his arms, his revenues, and his provinces had been torn from his hands, and that he was ready to abdicate a dignity which he was unable to support. The emir was inexorable, the furniture of the palace was sold, and the paltry price of forty thousand pieces of gold was instantly consumed in private luxury. But the apprehensions of Baghdad were relieved by the retreat of the Greeks. Thirst and hunger guarded the desert of Mesopotamia, and the emperor, satiated with glory and laden with oriental spoils, returned to Constantinople, and displayed in his triumph the silk, the aromatics, and three hundred myriads of gold and silver. Yet the powers of the East had been bent, not broken, by this transient hurricane. After the departure of the Greeks, the fugitive princes returned to their capitals. The subjects disclaimed their involuntary oaths of allegiance. The Moslems again purified their temples, and overturned the idols of the saints and martyrs. The Nestorians and Jacobites preferred the Saracen to an orthodox master. And the numbers and spirit of the Melchites were inadequate to the support of the church and state. Of these extensive conquests, Antioch, with the cities of Cilicia and the Isle of Cyprus, was alone restored, a permanent and useful accession to the Roman Empire. End of chapter 52, part 5